we started talking about names and and business names, which is very, very important. And she goes, well, what what do you do? What makes you different? Why are you popular than the guy next door, the next trainer? I said, I don't really know. I said, like, I, I go for a run with them. I try and do the session with them. I'm kind of like their mate, I suppose. And she goes, well, you're, you're a training mate. That's the name of the business. I'm like, <laughs> no, worst, worst name I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> that was ridiculous. And anyway, like most things in life, after about a day, I came around to the fact that it was a great name. And so we went and registered everything and it was training mate. And now, so to speak, that was the start of the company. Hello and welcome, everyone. I am Jory Calkins, the founder and CEO of Enduring Companies and the host of Built to Outlast, a podcast and community for business builders by business builders. We explore the journeys and companies of business builders in America with a focus on traditional small to mid-sized business niches and the strategies which enable them to endure and flourish. If you are building a business now or aspire to build one in the future, this is for you. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources to support your journey, please visit builttooutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is, or if you want to buy or build a business and care who you do it with, please visit Enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. Welcome, everyone. For our show today, we are speaking with Luke Milton, who's a friend and the founder of TrainingMate. Welcome to the show, Luke. Appreciate having you. Hey, Jory. Thanks, mate. Look, I'm very appreciative to be here, and uh, thank you. Well, I'm excited to have you and to have this conversation. I thought maybe the first thing to do was to jump right in. You clearly don't have a Texas accent. So maybe you can give us a little bit of background on, you know, your personal history. Where are you from? Where were you born and raised? And it probably wasn't, you know, Houston, Texas. <laughs> well, you just ruined my whole story. So I usually lead with I am from <laughs> Texas. But uh, obviously, with this accent, mate, I am from Sydney, Australia. I've been in the United States for a little over 10 years now, and I'm enjoying it very much. It's it's great to, to merge the two cultures. And I haven't lost this accent, although it seems to be getting thicker the longer that I'm here. But look, a little bit about me, uh, ex-professional athlete. I was very fortunate enough to represent Australia in the sport of rugby, which uh, we'll get a bit of an education on over the next 60 minutes. Maybe I'll learn something. And I'm the founder of a company called Training Mate, which is a group of fitness studios in America, in the great US of A. Awesome. Well, I know there's a lot of good stories underneath that quick intro. So I'd love to jump in and just hear, you know, how was life growing up in Sydney? What you know, what got you into rugby? Does everyone play rugby over there? You know, what? what uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, mate. Look, I, I was very fortunate. I had one of those real storybook upbringings, right? We, I grew up very n- near a beach suburb in Australia and our summers were spent on the beach and our winters were spent, you know, it's not too bad in Australia through the winter time. So playing rugby, hanging with friends and doing all the things that children should be doing in a very safe environment and in a very active environment. School was always just, you know, place where we went and hung out and we got to know each other and we got to develop all of our skills, learn a little bit. Australia doesn't put as big of an emphasis on the educational, you know, evolution of children as we do the physical sort of attributes and development. So sport was a huge part of my childhood. Started off in soccer, 
then went into you know surf lifesaving, and then when I really developed a a serious passion for rugby, I was kind of around ten, eleven, and then into my teenage years. But growing up in Australia was just as you imagine. It's kind of one of those cliches or one of those you know things that you expect, and it is as expected. There's lots of beach stuff. There's lots of outdoors, and yes, everyone does play rugby in Australia. <laughs> it's a religion. You know that that might tell you a lot about us as. This this recording goes on <laughs> about if I forget some things, I was a few head knocks. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to hear more about that. So, so how did you? So you get into rugby, and everyone's playing it. How did you end up kind of ascending to uh, the top of that that scrum? Is it called a scrum in rugby? What's it called? How do you, how do you ascend <laughs> I, to the top of the scrum? I stayed out of that part, Joy. That's for the tough guys. I was I was out the back, <laughs> running away from everyone with fear. But look, it, it was just. Like anything in life, how we got to the top of that industry or how I got to the top of that industry was through passion. I genuinely loved playing, genuinely loved being around the guys. I genuinely loved the camaraderie, all of those attributes that go with team sport. I fell in love with that really early on and what now I've progressed into mateship, what I call mateship. That was the big attraction for me with team sport, just having a group of guys there that were there through the good times, the bad times, the everyday times. And just having that support network and people you could rely on. The game itself, I think that most people are competitive by nature and I'm no exception to that. The competition of just that, you know, ability to, to challenge yourself and challenge the hard work that you've put in and see that come to some sort of fruition in a game was again, another, another attraction to me. And, just falling in love with the process as, you know, uh, we'll talk about a lot throughout this conversation. I'm a real process sort of person and a journey person and just falling in love with the journey of professional sports, which wasn't professional it started with and just falling in love with the process of going for a run, practicing skills, kicking a ball, throwing a ball, being around people, being what I would determine a good teammate, making sacrifice but positive sacrifices in order to achieve a goal, set the goal and have a clear objective of how to go and get that dream and daydream a lot, right? Like, you know, start to think about the impossible, start to think about things that may not have been attainable to a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid. It was kind of fictional, right? They were our, our superheroes as kids. So, to endeavor to be one of them was always a driving factor, but there was always that daydreaming kind of aspect to it that kept me excited and kept me moving towards that that goal i love that you gotta you gotta love the journey but you gotta be pushing pushing towards something on the journey too yeah absolutely look the journeys are so fun but the processes are what gets you to enjoy that journey right yeah i'd love to um in a sec circle back to mateship because that that sounded like an interesting concept i'd love to hear more about what that is and how you've come to think about it. Maybe before we do that, can you um, talk through some of the specifics of of that journey for you in rugby? You know, you started, you said you were 10 and you ended where you ended, which I'm sure we'll get to in a sec, which is very exciting. Can you talk about that journey and how that evolved from, you know, a passion to a profession and, and everything underneath that? Absolutely. So look, 
early on, I was like every other 10, 11-year-old kid in Australia that wanted to play sport and run around with their mates. And that's how that passion was developed. So hanging around and finding the love in what we said, the everyday journey, showing up to practice after school at 5 or 6 p.m. on a Tuesday and a Thursday night, and then really looking forward to a Saturday game. So it started off as that. I was very fortunate. I had a couple of really good coaches young in life and they allowed me to develop that passion, develop a set of skills that went along with that passion. And then as I started to get to 13, 14, then we started to identify some set skills. I was, you know, growing at a, at a rate that was conducive to playing sport. I was quick. I was fast. I was athletically able. So all of those things were kind of like this great melting pot of the ingredients, at least, to have the physical attributes to go into and take sport a little bit more seriously. I was a part of a successful local team. We won a lot, and that helps. <laughs> that really does help with the enjoyment. <laughs> Winning, you know, going and getting your butt kicked every week probably would have dulled that enjoyment a little bit, but I was very fortunate to be a part of that. When I was 14 years of age, a manager or an agent, uh, local at the time, reached out and he was like, listen, what do you want to do with your life? You've got all this ability. There's a couple of teams that are interested in you. What do you want to do? And I was like, well, this is kind of like left field. I just want to play with my mates and go and get into the same sort of mischief and trouble as everyone else and be a bit of a normal kid. And then I got to know this guy. His name's Greg Willett. He was a, a chartered accountant at the time, but he was a, a sports agent as well. And one of the things that he did was identified talent in young kids. So I grew up in that beach suburb, as I told you, but he came and got me and he was like, listen, if you want to leverage this athletic ability, you've got to start thinking a little bit bigger than your local area, local suburb. Now, I'm very grateful for how I grew up. I'm very grateful for the values in which I grew up. I grew up, my dad was a police officer and my mum was a dental nurse. So, grew up in a normal middle-class family, never went without, certainly didn't have anything more than we needed, but we did have a lot of love and we had a lot of values and both of my parents are people of values and, and, and they are really good people. So with that, I was like, okay, this is kind of foreign, but I was offered a scholarship to uh, Australia's most elite boys' school, which is called the Scots College. So orchestrated and sort of quarterbacked, to put an American term on it, by Greg, this agent. You got to translate for us. I got to go in there. I got to get in there. It's a Texan in me. So then we went and I, I went to this school called the Scots College, all boys school, uh, you know, very elite school. And then I developed this love for everything that came off the back of sports, right? Because sport isn't just the, the game. It's not just what you do on the field or on the practice pitch. It's all these things that you get off the back of it. And all of a sudden, I was with some of the wealthiest, most evolved and successful business families in Australia, but it was equaled out by my sporting ability. So I started to have a direct correlation between, okay, cool, my social status climbs because of my abilities in sport that were comparable to their achievements in business. And so once I went to Scots, I started to develop a more holistic passion for sport, I would say, and then for everything that goes off the back of sport. I was really, really enjoying the circles that I was uh, in, meeting, and just loving the evolution of sport. So I just developed a bigger passion, if that makes sense, for sport. So as I then developed into my later teens, the school sport was still to this day the most fun I've ever played. Playing for Scots in the first 15, which is what we call our, our rugby team was just magical. Now, 
At the time, I developed quite well. I turned professional at 18. I was technically still at high school when I, when I turned professional. So as you can imagine, it was, you know, it was a challenge to try and keep that ego down. And I'm not sure I did it successfully at the time. <laughs> um, you know, did you're 18. Best. Yeah, I did my best. I, did, I worked with what I had. But, um, but look, I was 18 years of age playing on TV in Australia. You know, Australia is a very sport focused community and, and society. So, you know, I was doing all of these things was seemingly success at a very young age at a little, you know, into my later 18th year. I was almost 19. We won. I was with a team called the Sydney Roosters, which was kind of the equivalent. And this might annoy a lot of people, but I'm just talking about the success ratio of it. Kind of like the equivalent of the, of the Patriots, right? So it was like a very successful team. It was a very high profile team. And I was the youngest player on that team. And then my captain at the time was arguably the greatest player to ever play. And he was like, you know, 11, 12 years older. So he would have been 30 when I was 18. So just the, the mentorship and the leading by example that I got to learn off playing with someone like that was just phenomenal. So I'm 18 years of age and we win the equivalent of the Super Bowl. So as you can imagine, it's a pretty steep decline after that, right? Where do you go? What do you do? (laughs) So I'm this egotistical kid that thinks they've done everything and they're 18, 19 years of age. So from there, uh, I just wanted to keep challenging myself. So I changed sport. There are two codes of rugby in Australia. There's rugby league, which would be considered a more working class sport, definitely a very supported sport. It's professional, but definitely a little bit rougher. And then there's rugby, which is an, a rugby union, which is a, an international sport that's supposed to be the sport played in private schools and people say it's the gentleman's game. So, you know, I'm not sure how I fitted into that, but that was definitely uh, where I went in to challenge my, my skill set after that. So I was 21. I've won a, a equivalent of a Super Bowl, been a part of the, the, the team that won the equivalent of a Super Bowl, achieved seemingly success on paper. Uh, you know, I was very grateful, very fortunate to do that. So then I thought, you know, what better time to go and challenge that and totally rewrite this career and learn a new skill set. So I went out and, and, and decided to go and develop my skills in another code and which I was fortunate enough. I went and played for the New South Wales Waratahs and then I was super fortunate to play for Australia in the sport of rugby union. I actually did it in the sport of uh, rugby league as well. And, very proud that I'm one of only a few people that's represented Australia in both sports. But then I went to there and I was very fortunate. I ended up captaining Australia in rugby union and just very, very grateful for the skills that I learned, the challenges that I, that I learned. The best hit to my ego was going and thinking that I was just going to go and play rugby union just as well as I played rugby league and going to be the best at that. And no <laughs> one's going to be able to do anything. And I made an absolute fool of myself. And there's no better motivation in life than trying to repair that ego once it's been damaged. Well, that's amazing. Thank you for for sharing that. And um, I'd love to, before we talk a little bit about maybe mateship and some of the other lessons you took from that, talk about that specific lesson of, you know, it sounds like you had a pretty rapid ascension, but I'm sure there were kind of ego checks along the way. Can you can you talk through some of those? And, you know, what helped you get through some of those? Was it, you know, the confidence you had of just working through them? Was it mentors? Was it kind of a range of stuff? Would love to hear that specifically because, you know, on any journey and in particular a high achieving journey, being able to overcome 
kind of blows to the ego is an important muscle, uh, for lack of a better description, for for people to to build up. Yeah, look, you just got the Instagram reel over the last five minutes, right? You got the highlight reel. Now, everyone knows that highlight reels are what they are. They're highlight reels. They're a very small percentage of reality. So now the real story is there were a lot of challenges along the way. As I said, I, you know, I was a part of a team called, you know, the Sydney Roosters, which was the equivalent of the Patriots. Now, with that goes a starting lineup of the best athletes in the world. So always competing with them, finding yourself on the bench, finding yourself being dropped from the team. All of those things were those hits to your ego every single day. Now, when I when I transitioned across to rugby union and talk about the ego getting hit, I went from, you know, being a part of a Super Bowl winning team over to challenging new environment. Now, when I first started and I didn't give the respect to the skill set of rugby union that it deserved, and I just thought that my ability as an athlete would overcome all of that, I actually found myself being dropped out of the local team. So in rugby, the way it works, you play for a local team and then your Patriots or your NFL team, I should say. I've got to stop. We're going to lose a lot of listeners if I keep saying <laughs> Patriots. But you can just uh, say the, Patriots, Cowboys, Giants, just mix it Cowboys up. Cowboys, you know? go for it, yeah. So uh, the NFL team then is the ascension from that local team. So obviously my expectation was to be in that representative team and play for New South Wales and why wouldn't I and the rest of it. And what I learned was I was starting to get really frustrated at myself for not being able to pick it up as quick as I could. And that was being reflected on the field. So I wasn't playing very well. And so at a local league, which was, you know, on paper, lower uh, standard than I was used to playing, well, I wasn't even measuring up there. So then I got dropped from there. And then talk about what you got to do through adversity then, right? Because this is a huge part that we've got to start to live as humans. Adversity is going to happen. It's how we deal with and react to adversity that either makes you, I would say, win or lose. So now I find myself, you know, three or four months on starting to question the decision to leave the Sydney Roosters and to leave uh, Rugby League and to leave what would have been quite a comfortable next 10 years of my life, to be honest. I probably could have, you know, done that in an easier way. And now I'm finding myself dropped and I'm playing in front of 200 people and the equivalent of that was playing in front of you know an NRL grand final team of 100,000 people um, plus however many people on TV at home and now I'm down the local park or the local field playing in front of everyone but a lost dog and really starting <laughs> to challenge whether or not I was enjoying the, the, the process anymore or the journey and I had a, a coach called Michael Checker who actually turned out to be you know, a really, really great coach. But he called me. He's like, Meltz, my, my nickname's Meltz. He goes, Meltz, I, you know, I, I'm coming to pick you up. I want to have a chat with you. We're going to get through this. You know, I, I don't want you to lose faith because you've got all the ability that you need and I want to work with you. And then he basically just started breaking it down for me. We did a lot of personal work. We did a lot of work on the skill set that was, that was more appropriate to rugby union or to learning a new skill set and that would be the equivalent of starting a new business or whatever that may be but there are things that are the same there are a lot of things that you just got to associate differently and then I learned some of the grassroots things that I should have learned years beforehand and then I actually adapted and I started to put my own skills or the skills that are are transferable across 
And things started happening. It, that's, a, that's a real, a real light bulb moment, right? You put the work in and you do the work, you do the job and you actually address the day to day things and the monotony of the, of that checklist and things start working out for you on the field. I was very fortunate. This is about a 12 month period, by the way. Very fortunate then to work my way back into the main team, back into the first team, played for New South Wales and the Waratahs. And then I was promoted to Australia. There was one more bit of adversity in there. I were all set with the New South Wales Waratahs to go on a beautiful tour of Argentina at the end of the year and, you know, play against Argentina and play against some of the local teams there and, you know, have a bit of an end of the season sort of, you know, just just decompress a little bit and get away and do a bit of travel whilst playing. Uh, the night before we left, we were just running through a scrimmage, very basic. I went down to lay the ball down, put my shoulder or put my arm out, dislocated my shoulder again and was in for surgery three days later. So on that, that was the end of my contract year. So my plan was to go and have the best tour that I've ever had in Argentina, really impress everyone and sign a bigger contract, long-term contract. That was put on halt when I dislocated my shoulder and was in for surgery a couple of days later. So I had a full shoulder reconstruction, which for everyone out there, that's about a six-month, that's you know, about a six-month recovery process before you play again. I got back on the field within five months, but I certainly wasn't the player that I was before it because you start to muscle guard, right? You don't make the the tackle that you should have made or you don't run as fast. You're restricted in movement because you're in so much tape and strapping. So I had to learn that as well and then develop my confidence again. So look, the moral of the story was there's a lot of confidence hits. It was about the tenacity to keep going and the determination to keep going and finding your confidence because the the silver lining on all of that was I got the very rare privilege of captaining my country and representing my country after all of that adversity. So that's what I'm most proud of. Yeah, that's an incredible journey and kind of demonstration of the tenacity that it takes to get to where you got to. Were there any kind of tips or tricks that was uh, the coach who kind of came to you when you were playing in front of a stray dog? Was it Michael Checker? Was it Checker? Yep, Michael Checker. Were there any specific tips or tricks he gave you to kind of you know, if you're feeling like you're in a, a rut or something like that, that that helped you kind of snap yourself out of it and reorient uh, mentally and emotionally. Yeah, and they're all cliches, and 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 you know, look, cliches are for a reason. Multiple people have said them before us, but it was trust the process. The big thing of having any mentor or even not that word, but just someone that's supportive in your life is that they keep reminding you to stay on track and to stay focused on the process because everyone has the ability to get that success. You've just got to remind yourself that that's that's the journey you're on and to do the day-to-day work. And the other one was to start to embrace learning the new skills. I, like so many people, I'm sure listening and to so many people in life, patience is not my best attribute. I wanted to, you know, conquer everything. And I think that a lot of that had to do with that early success, right? In retrospect, maybe it wasn't the best thing to win the equivalent of the Super Bowl when you're 18 years of age and to turn professional. Maybe I should have slowed the roll a little bit there and maybe I should have, you know, held off a little bit, not turn professional at 18, waited until I was 21. There's so many different sort of questions there. But learning patience and learning to start to enjoy the development of the skills that you don't yet have instead of trying to hide your weaknesses by your strengths. And that was one of the big things that I'm very fortunate to learn early 
developing the skill set to address my weaknesses instead of relying on my strengths to hide my weaknesses was one of the big things that that process taught me. Yeah, that's a, I mean, a pretty profound and not an experience that uh, that everyone has or is able to have, especially that early on in their kind of development uh, personally and professionally. I'd love to, um, in a sec, talk about how, you know, as you transition from that career to your next one, how you chose that and, and how and why and, and, and where you went next, because that was and is as impressive of a, of a kind of continuation of the journey. Before we do that, would love to make sure we learn a little bit more about this concept of mateship because it feels like, you know, that's something that's continued on for you, but uh, has its roots in kind of your rugby experience. So I'd love to hear what, what exactly you mean by that. Yeah, mate, I think this is a really important thing. And it's one that I've put way more emphasis on later in life than I did earlier in life. So mateship to me is just living in values, having your values and living in values because I, my whole goal in life is to be a good mate. Now, what I mean by that is I want to answer the phone when you call. I want to do the right thing. If I can help, I want to help. And if I can support, I want to support. In the same way, if you've been a dick, I want to be able to tell you you've been a dick, right? That is what mateship is to me. So I think that just being there and doing the right thing, being there to celebrate the wins with someone, being there to pick someone up off the ground if they're going through a hard time, and just being there for the everyday going for a walk in your neighborhood or going to a local game or an opera or whatever it is, I just want to be that person that People know they can rely on. People know that they've got a support system there, but people don't take advantage of or use you as a weak link in the thing. Mateship is about mutual support. Mateship is about being a good person and a mateship is about being there for someone regardless of the circumstances. That's awesome. And I love that you focus not only on kind of the positives, but you know an important aspect of being a good mate I'm going to start using that, by the way. An important part of being a good mate is being willing to tell someone when they're being a dick or, yep. uh, you know, sometimes the most important love to give someone is tough love. And, and um, you know, hopefully that that comes through to, to folks, especially those that are that are uh, your mates. So uh, I love that aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So so you've conquered the the rugby world. You're kind of on the top of of that continent. Why, why the heck did you decide to come to a, you know, I, I don't want to. I guess people know you're in the U.S. now because we started talking about that. But you know, I thought it was the accent. I thought the accent. Yeah, that's true. Tri- the, yeah, the, the, the Texas US. accent. Yeah. <laughs> how? Uh, so walk me through. You know how you uh, transitioned into your next career, and 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 as importantly, I'd love to know. I mean, I'm sure you could have done a lot of things at that point. You know, why did you decide to do what you decided to do? And you know, how does that reflect back to kind of your values and what you learned about yourself on on the first mountain you climbed? Yeah, look, I, I'm a walking cliche. I, the the short story of this is I fell in love. So I'm 26, 27 years of age at the time. Not now, not now. Surprise, surprise. But uh, 26, 27 <laughs> you years look of great, age. By at the, the time. way, <laughs> thanks, you, you mate. Must be yeah. moisturizing or something. It's the ring light. It's the ring light. Yeah. Um, look, <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the time we start to sort of have different moments in our life, right? So to set the scene for you, I'm 26, 27. I just captained Australia, so I'm at what I think is the pinnacle of my professional athletic. Athletic career. I couldn't be more proud of some of the things that I'd been achieving. 
And surprise, surprise, I meet a girl. And I met a girl in a bar. Uh-huh. He, age old go, story. Yeah, yeah, the old weakness. No, but look, go, go figure. I know that this might be new to a lot of people listening or, or whatever it is, but we actually used to meet people in, in person. So, uh, met a girl <laughs> at, a, at a bar in Sydney, Australia, and she's an American girl, actually. And, Look, we dated for six months. She was in Australia doing six months abroad from a college in America called Georgetown University. And she, we dated. She showed me a lot of different things that I was not used to. She did not care for one bit who I thought I was, what I thought I was achieving. Uh, and it was a really good moment of reflection. So we dated for six months while she was in Australia. I still had a year left on my contract. She had a year left of college. So she goes back to Georgetown and finishes a year. We didn't have all these beautiful things or they weren't as viral, I should say, like uh, Facebook and the rest of it. So we would do the occasional email, maybe a once a week phone call on the landline with the long cord just to set, set how old I am. And then basically from there, a year later, we end up playing at Twickenham. We beat England. It was one of the biggest games of our, our my career. It was so phenomenal. I end up in New York City with a friend of mine who owned the bar that we met at just to set this very long story. And Kerry was in New York looking for a, an apartment. After what was supposed to be a three-day trip to New York, I stayed for two weeks. I fell back in love with her and I said, this is ridiculous. I went back to Australia, I retired and I moved to New York City. And I would like to say that the beautiful part about that story is 12 years later, we have a cat, a kid and a mortgage and <laughs> it worked out. It worked out. It worked out. Um, your your yeah. gut instincts were right. Exactly. We we got married. We've got a, a beautiful little daughter now and we're very, very happy. That's amazing. And, and uh, I appreciate you sharing that. I'd love to kind of connect the dots between some of those initial interactions you had with her and the uh, mateship and feedback that she gave you about, you know, (laughs) kind of some of the things that she did and didn't appreciate about, you know, kind of where you were at at the time. Uh, You know, what it sounds like, you know, obviously, in hindsight, that's been a great relationship. But I'd love to hear a little bit about how she, you know, became your, your kind of your first mate that helped you grow into an even better person than you were in some aspects of that, because that seems like it was foundational of this transition in your life. It was right there for you, Jordan. You could have said soulmate. Soulmate. It was right there. <laughs> I was teeing you up. I was okay, lining it up for mate. you. You're the athlete. See, that's a mate. There's that Listen, mateship right there. So just looking after me. Let, uh, just, you're the just athlete. Feed me the two of us, if, if I tried to swing at something, I'd whiff. And, you know, I just, I'm just, I'm here to lob them up for you. Oh, man, I appreciate it. I need all the help I can get. Look, she was so great in challenging me in so many different ways of my life. She is very much more intelligent than I am. She has much more of a focus on intellectual evolution than I do. And she taught me that there is much more to life than being a D-list celebrity for playing a sport in Australia, which was my foundational value. Now, and that's not to take away from that and, and, and those accomplishments, but she exposed me to a much bigger world. And I was very impressed with just how smart she was, how driven she was, and just how in love with processes and corporate ladders she was with and just her intellect and her curiosity for different industries and lack of being impressed with what I was doing because I was impressed by what I was doing, right? So 
that's where we started to, to really challenge each other. And I feel like at the start, as we as I transition out of sport and into business, I believe that a lot of the stuff I did early was purely just to impress her. It was kind of like she wasn't the sort of person that was materialistically impressed, if that makes sense. She didn't care about a fancy car. She didn't care about a watch. She still doesn't, by the way. But she was more impressed with people um, who were smart, who were doing different things, who were continually growing, who were curious about the world, who were curious about different cultures, who were curious about, you know, doing something more than they were now, progressing in life, evolving in life. And so I think that when I started training, mate, which I know we're going to talk about a lot, that's the the business side of things. I think when I started that, it was actually more just trying to impress her and almost try and work out things that I, my insecurities in impressing her. Many great empires and businesses and things were, were are built out of that motivating uh, factor. So you don't, don't feel like you're alone. Um, <laughs> That, so that gives a natural lead into uh, training mate. Can you tell us a little bit about there's still a number of ways to impress a girl. Why did you choose, you know, gyms? Retiring and, for the only thing I was ever good at yeah. <laughs> and, and, and starting you know. a, new, a new chapter yeah. in my life. Yeah, tell, tell me about that or tell us about that. I always knew that there was going to be another chapter in my life. I, I, I always knew there was going to be something above and, and, and in extension to rugby. I didn't think it was going to come that early, to be honest. As I said, I retired when I was 27, 26, 27. Um, now look. I thought As about retiring happened. when I was 27, by the way, but <laughs> you turn, turns out, <laughs> turns out that's not possible, at least for me. Yeah, no, I'll trust you now. There's, there's lots of rum and noodles, don't worry. But, um, <laughs> and, and I just want to preface too by saying that Australian rugby players do not get paid what American professional athletes do. <laughs> so, yeah. But look, I, I, it was more just, the, just the, the challenge. So I made a super smart idea to move to New York during 08, 09. And everyone knows what happened during 0809. <laughs> so look, I had, I had the time in my life. Don't get me wrong. I met some great people and had a really good experience, but it wasn't really conducive to, uh, to moving on with the next chapter of your life. The economy was failing to put it lightly or to put it politely. And I made the decision to leave and go back to Australia. And I, I sort of danced around the idea of making a comeback. As soon as I decided to make that comeback, I realized quite quickly that I needed to move on to that next chapter of my life pretty quickly. <laughs> and having a year off contact sports, not good for uh, trying to get back into it. But look, then I started training, mate. I started, it was actually, this is going to give everyone an insight into how creative I am. I started a business called Milton Health Management. And that's a SEO dream, as you can imagine. <laughs> and, and so I started just personally training people. It started as corporate wellness. It started, I started training some executives at JP Morgan at Credit Suisse. I started to develop a system around it accidentally, which we can get into. And then Kerry actually was still in New York at this time and we were dating long distance. And it was actually her mum that just said, listen, because Kerry always wanted to live in New York. She always wanted to, she's very career oriented and she was working for a great advertising company in fashion in New York City. She was living her dream at the time. And her mum said to her, listen, there'll always be another job. There may not be a soulmate. I'm sure she didn't use soulmate. That's just for the, for the first mate. Yeah. First mate. There might not be another first mate. So. She jumped on a plane, which is so not like her, and moved to Australia, Sydney, Australia. And wow. 
Yeah, tell me about it. So anyway, as we're sort of filtering around this business, it started going okay. I started getting a few clients. I, I, you know, I was popular with them. We we're starting to get some requests for me to do some some bigger things as far as fitness went. It was a natural is in, progression in Australia. This or is in, in, si- in the US? Sydney. Yep, in in, okay. in in Sydney, Australia. Started to get a bit more sort of traction. Um, it was a natural progression because coming out of a professional sporting background, but I used all of those things accidentally at the time that were so conducive to sport, like being on time and putting in the effort and being quite lighthearted, but still working hard and that camaraderie and the taking the piss, so to speak, as far as like, you know, Australians are very much like the more insulting they are to you, the more they like you. So weirdly as that is. Um, I did that a lot with my clients and started to develop a real relationship and a real solidarity of relationship. And as it started to go good, we were sitting on our, the floor of our little one-bedroom apartment in Sydney and Kerry, we started talking about names and, and business names, which is very, very important. And she goes, well, what what do you do? What makes you different? Why are you popular than the guy next door, the next trainer? I said, I don't really know. I said, like, I, I go for a run with them. I try and do the session with them. I'm kind of like their mate, I suppose. And she goes, well, there you're, you're a training mate. That's the name of the business. I'm like, <laughs> no, worst, worst name I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> that was ridiculous. And anyway, like most things in life, after about a day, I came around to the fact that it was a great name. And so we went and registered everything and it was training mate. And now, so to speak, that was the start of the company back then in Sydney, Australia as training mate. And, and, you know, as we dive into that a little bit more and the evolution of training mate from a business into a company, you know, so many of those things were instrumental in, in leading the values and the foundational values of what training mate is. And, and it still is this day on a larger scale now, but it still is about being a mate and having that mateship and being a training mate in the physical, social and mental health sections of our life, which makes a healthy lifestyle. That's a great story. I talk about being uh, first mate, soulmate, helping you come up with training mate. You know, everyone helping you two helping each other be better and better versions of yourself. That that's that's an amazing kind of foundation for the business that's kind of blossomed into to training mate. I'd love to hear more about that because I think it's it's both training folks, but now you all have gyms and and it, it's it's uh, you know grown pretty significantly from that you know one bedroom in Sydney. So I'd love to hear kind of that evolution from that point going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So how it started to transition out of that, as I said, we were very fortunate to get a little bit of success in Australia. I actually accidentally developed a system. One of the higher executives at JP Morgan at the time, he came to me, I was training him privately, and he said, listen, I've got a few guys that work on the desk. They are not as, you know, financially on in their career as I am. So can you work something out where three of them come basically for the price of one? I said, yeah, mate, no worries. I'll work it out. There's another thing with Australians. Yeah, she'll be right, mate. And you don't really know what you're going to do at the time, but (laughs) you're just confident that you're going to work it out. So I have three people show up and so I go, this is easy. I put them in three different sections with three exercises each in front of them and I just transition them through that. Took 45 minutes and there was training, mate, in a nutshell. That was the system that we use in all of our studios now. So not to get too far ahead of myself, I developed that system in Australia. A year or two later go on and Kerry being the you know very passionate American that she is, she's like, I want to go back to America. Too much of this, you know, small country stuff is starting <laughs> to affect my my patience in life and I want to go back to America. So she's from the East Coast. 
but we decided on Los Angeles as a stop. I wanted to challenge training mate against the bigger people in the industry, the bigger companies in the industry. There's that competitive spirit coming back out. And I, I wanted to go over there and just see whether it was just popular in a very, you know, big fish in a small pond mentality or whether we really had something there and, and whether we could go and compete with the big guys, so to speak. So. We decided on Los Angeles. We moved to Los Angeles and we took our first brick and mortar location. That was in West Hollywood in 2013. So we opened with, you know, <laughs> a, a dream and naivety, I suppose. And we just opened the doors. This is again before social media was really viral. So you couldn't effectively, well, we certainly didn't use it as a successful marketing tool at the time. It was basically open the doors and hope people come in, right? And so we set it up and I was so excited. And anyway, look, I'm very, very proud to say that within about, within about three months, we started getting real, like real traction. Uh, I think it was the thir- the first month we lost money, and I was like, "Uh oh, I don't have much more money left." <laughs> so, like, <laughs> how does this business stuff work? And then by the third month, we're operationally profitable. So, a really funny part about this story is that we built this st- this studio out in West Hollywood. We did our TIs, our tenant improvements in this studio in West Hollywood. And I, I actually fell short on the money that I had to fit the studio out. I had X amount of money to fit the studio out and the builder built it out and he kind of didn't finish it, so to speak, but it wasn't noticeable, but he is like 5% off. So I kind of secretly withheld about fifteen thousand, about $18,000 that I didn't have at the time and just how this all works and, again, how funny it <laughs> Just being naive can be a uh, you know an, an asset sometimes. I was like, oh yeah, we can't pay that last bill until until you know it's finished off. It took him about three or four months to come back and finish it off. Thank goodness by that time the company was going actually quite well, and I'd had the savings. And I actually paid <laughs> the guy. So that was the the very the very uh, you know, polished and calculated uh, process of starting training mount. Now within twelve months. That studio had been listed as one of the hottest celebrity-driven studios in the US, and I had become a quote-unquote celebrity trainer, whatever that term means, and we were starting to see some real traction and some real success with the brand, with the brand identity, and with the utilization and attendance at Training Mate. And it was all built around the culture that we were building. It was all built around our philosophy. And it was all built around that attraction to community that I believe we were so right in leading with from the start. There are a few things I kind of mentally noted as you described that. And I'd love to dig a little bit deeper on kind of the the gyms and the, the business model on that in a sec. But one of the things that you mentioned that really resonated with me was kind of early on to this client at, at JP Morgan, you kind of extended trust, right? Like you went out on a limb, extended trust, but as a result of that, you know, you could have gotten burned, but you got a great uh, thing out of that. You, you kind of better defined the model, which has ultimately become training mate. So I think it's fascinating to, to see in a number of threads and, and conversations and, and experiences I've had how the extension of trust can sometimes, you know, leave you burned, but a continued willingness to extend that trust often results in some great, great outcomes. It sounds like you had one there. So I just think it's fascinating to hear that. I'd love to to hear from you if you've kind of thought about that extension of trust and, and the benefits and risks of doing that. 
A hundred percent. I actually think it's the most important thing in the success of life. I, I cannot emphasize this point enough. So often we're going to face adversity in life. So often we're going to be presented with risk. Take it. Take the risk. Trust yourself. Trust the process. Take the risk and go and absolutely kick that door in, right? Tony Robbins has this amazing quote that I live my life by now. Life happens for us, not to us. And the minute that we take ourselves out of that victim mentality and put ourselves into this passionate, driven, ambitious lead in life, that's when we start to see some real magic, right? Yep, guess what? Could have ripped me off. And if he did, whatever learning example for me, and I would have progressed in another way of life, right? But those lessons that you learn in the adversity and just working things out and trusting the process. Again, I know I use that example through rugby. I use that example through, you know, Rob and all the rest of it down at JP Morgan there. And I also use that example over what we've just been through over the last couple of years as well, right? Adversity creates just as many opportunities as it does challenges. And that's where we start to learn to, to, to live. That's where we learn to grow. And that's where we can get those nuggets out that will actually dictate the rest of our lives. So I, I've learned to love adversity. I've learned to love some of the challenging times because as we come out of those, you're going to come out with such a better artillery of, of weapons that you can use and deploy into the future success or just future progress of your life, whether that's personal, whether that's business, whatever that may be. Adversity is actually your friend. Yeah, you, you want to welcome it. We want these times because we'll never be the people who we are without these adverse times. And Training Mate would never be the company it is without the, that adversity early on, both in Australia and in America. And I just keep getting reminded of how leaning into this and learning from it and remembering that life happens for us and not to us and always trusting that process, how important that is in developing the skill sets that you need to live a successful life. I love that. And I love how that kind of rhymes with some of the growth that you experienced uh, in your rugby career. You know, I, I, this is a wild guess, but my, my guess is that if you hadn't had to kind of lift yourself up and keep rebuilding and keep fighting on the rugby side of things, you know, who the heck knows if training mate would even exist for a number of reasons. But but one of very important of them being exactly that willingness to get back up and run out there and grow from adversity, not kind of cave to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the best. I really think it's the best tip you could ever, ever embrace. The other, um, this is going to get into my, you know, and reveal my lens a little bit, but, you know, I'm kind of a business nerd and business junkie. The way I was thinking about, and I'd love to, um, in a sec, jump in on some of the gyms and how the ramp works and how some of the social media presence and, and kind of celebrity presence you've had has kind of fed into that. But before that, the other, I, w- I was kind of using my business nerd lens to think about that risk you took with the city uh, or JP Morgan client. Where you know, I like that trade, right? It's kind of an asymmetric trade. Your your loss, if if nothing comes out, is you know you haven't fully gotten paid on a few hours of work. The upside is exactly what happened, which is you've crystallized a business concept that you've been able to scale pretty significantly. So I love and and kind of identify with it on a kind of business risk reward filter as well. And it seems like you know that was a that was a great bet. And my guess is some don't work out that way, but but more often than not, it does. So I love that and how that dovetails with kind of a growth mindset that you were talking about before. 
Can you just to continue the my you know my business nerd filter? Can you talk a little bit about um, some of those uh, initial gyms and you know maybe how that first one ramped up, but and how that dovetails with kind of the social media presence you've been able to build and and, and also some of the uh, kind of celebrity clientele you've been able to build and how those two kind of feed each other and and how the model has developed as a result of that. Yeah, absolutely. So we have that first year and we, and we do really well. And then I started thinking about, okay, expansion. All right. This does very, very well as a single unit. Now, how do we expand this? How do we go from a business to a company? You know, what do we need to do? And what Training Mate had at the time were a bunch of soft systems. We did our thing really, really well, right? I could develop a, a culture and experience, uh, you know, and I could actually get a couple of other people to do that really, really well. But what we didn't have were hard systems. I didn't have like a documented process of how to do that. What does the greeting look like? What does the demonstration look like? What are the nicknames for? Why do we say champion, legend, mate, let's kill it today, wah-rah-rah-rah-rah? Why are we basically making up words and adding to the English <laughs> language throughout it? But it's all very deliberate. And it's all about building a culture. How do you do that step by step? How do we do that? How do I get what's out of my head onto paper? And then bigger, how do I teach someone else how to do that and how to develop and deliver an experience and execute on having someone be feel a part of a family, a part of a team, and a part of a culture rather than a paying member for a 45-minute workout. So I always understood yeah, so, so I always understood that the experience was more important than the workout. Yeah, I love that. So because you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can sell 45 minutes of cardio exercise. What you're really doing is creating a different experience for people. I'd love to – you've articulated a little bit, but I'd, I'd love to articulate – if you could articulate a little bit more about that experience specifically and and how you chose to define it and why you chose to define it that way, maybe with some examples or something like that just to make it very tangible for people. Absolutely. So the the most important recognition that – or realization, sorry, that I came up with when I knew we were going to scale was – we have to get our systems and our processes in place and they have to be as airtight as possible. That means going down to what we have at Training Mate is a being a mate document. So showing up 15 minutes before your class, making sure that the room is set up, making sure you've done a sound check, making sure that you've checked in with the front desk to see if they need any help or any guidance, making sure that you've looked over your class, be reflective on people's names and just associate what you need to do over the next 45 minutes to deliver an experience that we've become known for. So that's a being a mate document. We kind of live by it. So that was all just naturally what I did, right? I would walk into work, but but I thought I was, you know, on cloud nine. <laughs> you actually you actually say that when you walk in? <laughs> yeah, no, in, yeah, inside my head, but I still do it. So <laughs> so I was doing all this sort of stuff, but it wasn't written down anywhere. I was doing it naturally. And in fact, when challenged with why training mate was successful or, you know, why my classes were successful, I actually couldn't tangibly tell you. I was like, because we have fun and we're great and the culture's amazing. How do you spell culture, Luke? I don't know. You know, it was like this whole thing. <laughs> thing about why was it the way it was. And once I got challenged with actually writing that down and creating hard systems, that's when we started to see some real magic because we started to see the scalability of the experience, not just the business. We started to see the scalability of, oh, this deliberate language 
has a visceral effect on people's day, on the smile. Someone walking in and being called legend and being, you know, sort of yelled at and having that wall of intimidation broken down and actually focusing in again on customer service, which I'll go on a rant about, but I think it's been so neglected over the last couple of decades, but actually focusing in on customer service, servicing the customer, you know, breaking back down of our internal monologue is, Our goal is to be the best part of our client's day. So what does that mean? It's being a mate, right? Live that document. Live how to do a demonstration. Make sure that you're competent at your job. Make sure that you're a likable and relatable person. Make sure that you're doing all of these things. We started to develop hard systems and growth systems, systems that we could put into place and we could replicate. And that's when we started to find the real magic of training, mate. So a year on from that, once I was confident in our hard systems, we opened another studio in Studio City. Now with that came a bunch of of challenges, right? Okay, cool. We had the experiential hard systems, but now where are the management hard systems? right? Because logistically, you can't be in two places at once anymore. There's no more being able to cover when some of those hard systems didn't really work out. A trainer doesn't show up. Someone gets sick. There's a car accident. What happens with all of these things? If I'm at the West Hollywood studio, I can't be at Studio City and cover that. And what I started to identify was, oh, maybe I'm the weakness in this company. And I say that reflectively because maybe I'm in the one that's in the way of this company actually growing because I would just fix everything. I would use the hard system to fix it, but I was still in the way of the growth of the company, right? So then, okay, cool. We've got to evolve these hard systems that, that don't require me to do it anymore. And then we develop the management systems. Okay, cool. What's a successful front of house legend? Where do we go from that? Um, who's in charge of calling someone? What's the process if a trainer's not here within 15 minutes of their class time? What are the processes that we need to follow if that happens? And it always happens. Not always happens to us, but <laughs> they're, they're, you're never not going to have you know this perfect model. So, all right, cool. Now we've got some plans. Now we've got some plans in place. Let's put them in place. But it took six months for us to kind of work those out on a multi-studio approach instead of a single studio hard system approach, if that makes sense. So as we started to develop our management things, then I made the amazing decision to go yeah, scale again. <laughs> so we opened our third studio. Why not? Every single time, I'm like, we're never doing this again. But you know, the joy's in the process, right? So so did it get uh, did it get easier? Sorry, I didn't mean to, to jump in, but did it? Do you feel like it got easier each time? It got you more know, successful. You, yeah, well, that's, <laughs> you know, that's a good indicator. There were more people coming in uh, once. So West Hollywood, to put some context on this, West Hollywood was listed as the number one studio in California, which we're so proud of. You know, it, it, it was a it was a phenomenon. Then we went and replicated it, and Studio City numbers actually started to beat West Hollywood numbers. And I'm like, wow, that's when I knew we had something. I always was confident in what we did, but that's when I knew when we replicated better than quote unquote the best studio in California. When we beat that. I was like, wow, we got some magic here. We need to scale it out and we need to deliver our healthy lifestyle message to more people. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you specifically scaled that magic as you described it. Because I think one of the knocks against gyms or gyms that are centered on a personality would be like, you know, this is all about Luke and people just want to come and hang out with Luke. How do you, how did you start defining 
you know, what a legend is and translating it from just Luke to here's the personality types we want, here's, you know, defining that for people and different roles. And how did you strike the balance between very being very prescriptive? You know, you've got to do this. We want to say these words. You know, this is how you welcome someone in with also uh, wanting to enable people to take real ownership and have their personalities shine through and have those drive some of that culture and relationships as well. How do you how do you how do you think about scaling and in particular scaling in the context of balancing being prescriptive but also enabling kind of um, freedom and ownership for the people that you're trusting, you know, when you're not there? Yeah, really good question. Initially, it was leading through example. As an ex-professional athlete, you're on the field, right? So you got to make your tackle, you got to make your run, you got to catch that ball. You got to lead by example and by the example of doing well. So initially, I what I was able to do was through having people come or potential trainers, potential people that I wanted to be involved in the culture of the company, they would just come to my classes and it was kind of like osmosis, right? Like you just hope that positivity, that energy rubbed off on people. Now, as we scaled, that turned into my ability to train trainers actually formally. So I developed a training system whereby now all of the trainers and all the front desks, they go through our training system. So it was really, really important to develop that training system. And that evolved. It's still evolving, by the way, but that evolved initially a lot more erratically than it does now because there were so many things that you didn't think of or that you just thought that were common sense. And the one thing that I learned in developing the actual systems where people follow is that common sense is certainly not common and that we have to actually put that down. And, and you know, the, the success of a process actually develop is, is depends on your ability to be able to put it into basic English and actually be able to get people to follow that and have their own take on it as well. So to keep going on with the the questions you asked, we identified that likability and relatability were the biggest factors in determining a successful employee of training mate and a successful teammate because all the technical knowledge in the world couldn't negate the fact that you were just a miserable person or negative or or just you know like you can't mate you're selling positivity you, you can't get, scale misery you can, you it's hard can, to scale well, misery in a gym uh, people have tried but look the, the, <laughs> the thing is that it's just it was a matter of like sort of look there was you know definitely slaying a few dragons before we got to the princess on that factor but it was a matter of really trying to scale positivity and, and identify likable and relatable people because what our difference in the market was, we were not intimidating. A lot of companies have successfully scaled intimidation in the fitness industry. They'll tell you why you don't deserve to be in there or why you're a loser for only doing 765 push-ups in 3.4 seconds. We are the opposite. There's no negativity. There's no yelling. There's no screaming unless it's very, very positive. It's like, Jory, you're a legend. Come on, let's go. Woo. And That's what we I do. Need. Exactly. So, you know, <laughs> and we dance where we're very uh, off center as our approach in our, or ex- our execution of our experience. I danced around in a pink Speedo. You just saw the entire <laughs> listening audience just switch off. Um, but we, and, and when we use social media, we do, we break a lot of rules, but the rule is that we have is we are not an intimidating company. You will be heroed, you'll be championed, and you will be supported throughout your whole process. Now that goes down to I developed a system around a timed format, not a rep count format. Now, just to put that in English for everyone, you will do an exercise as 
well as you can for a time for 45 seconds, not 20 reps or 50 reps or 10 reps because that creates too much of a gap between trained athletes and untrained athletes. Now, getting everyone to start to understand that, we centralize all of the programming. So identifying good people with good personalities, then they follow our programming, which is all centralized, and then they just have to really focus on delivering that experience. And that's what the majority of our training is, is enabling these guys, gals, to go out and deliver an experience. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And, and in particular, how the experience that you all have come to deliver is kind of counter position to a bunch of other gyms and how that helps you differentiate in the market. Is that something that you knew you wanted to do from the get go or was that something that kind of was, you know, baked into your personality and, and then you realized that that was something that you wanted to scale as part of the core concept or how, how did that kind of counter positioning come about in what you guys are delivering to the customer? Uh, it certainly wasn't <laughs> planned at the start. I think my my you know sort of measure of success was still being able to pay rent within a year at the start. <laughs> it was yeah that was basically my my you know, sort of landing post. But uh, it evolved, and yes, I didn't realize it. But training mate was just an extension of my life. I always was really quite positive and had a can do attitude. I think that we can teach ourselves how to be positive and how to be energetic for sure. But training mate was just like a yeah, we'll be right. Let's go. Let's do it, guys, and just work it out as you go. And and that's what what the start was. So no, it certainly wasn't deliberate in when we started training mate, but it's become the biggest part of training mate is that positivity, that energy and bigger than all of that is teaching other people how to do it because it's absolutely a teachable skill. So we evolved like anything and and we've sort of lent into our evolution and we've lent into our growth and we've lent into all of those things that are now basically our our, our IP, our, our value system. Yeah, I'd love to um, hear a little bit about how you teach people that, you know, how that's a teachable skill. And also, you know, you mentioned that I don't want to forget some of the thinking you've done around customer service and, and what that means to you and what it means to the market and, and how you see, it, you know, some things a little bit differently now and, and what that's informed about you for the business. For sure. On the customer service one, because that's a big one, I think that it comes down to a very simple mentality and it's delivering what you promise to deliver. I think that so often, uh, especially now with the exposure of social media and the power of marketing and the power of perception, so often it's kind of like, you know, you promise them a world and you give them an atlas, right? It's just like, it's just smoke and mirror. So what I've always set out to achieve and what I definitely instill in everyone that works at Training Mate or is involved in Training Mate is deliver what you promise to deliver. Now, if you're, if you're promising a high energy class, don't sit in the corner. You know, don't, don't worry about yourself or your own personal things. Deliver a high energy class. Get yourself out of a funk. How do you do that? Right? Because that's all well and good. And just live in this hyperbole of like, everyone can be positive and the world's great and birds chirp and the blue skies are always out. That's not necessarily true. So how do we develop skill sets? Do that five, four, three, two, one, click, go. So Mel Robbins came up with his approach, the rocket approach, where it's like count backwards, five, four, three, two, one, get up. Go and do it. Stay on your toes. Start leading with your breathing. Start with the chest out. Start with your body positioning. All right. All of these are very teachable things that physiologically change our attitude, change our being, and they change our approach to how we, how we do things. So 
There are a million skill sets, which I certainly didn't invent, but I've absolutely embraced out there that can teach you and can teach everyone with you how to achieve all the things that we've done. And energy is a huge part of what we do. Positivity, they're just sort of like your values, right? Like being a mate. No one wants to hang around, even though there is that saying, misery likes company. You know, that company is, I believe, separated and it's, and it's minimal. We can be positive. We can always lead with positivity and our values of our company, we encourage that. How I mean, what I mean by that is always ask people how their day is going. Ask them how you can help. You know, compliment someone on their shoes, their outfit, their hair, have a bit of a smile and be genuine. When we transition that off as we parlay now into customer service, what I mean by customer service is not the old adage of the customer is always right because I don't believe that, but I do believe the customer deserves to be serviced and serviced with our best possible approach, uh, best possible skill set. And what I mean by that is start to remember something about someone. Remember that someone went to New York and fell in love. Remember that someone has a daughter. Remember someone had a dog. Hey, how's that dog going? I know last time that you took him to the vet. Start to have a bit more of a personalized approach when you're delivering a service, this is, right? We don't, we're not in a manufacturing company. We deliver a service. So start to really identify what a foundational connection is with your customer. And that's what I believe customer services. Some of the systems that we have in training mate is that we have a Joey journey. So a Joey is a baby kangaroo. So how do we develop that relationship with our customers and with our clients? How do we do our customer service? If you're a first timer to training mate, or you're a Joey, you go on what's called the Joey journey. That means that you're greeted with a smile. You're asked if you have any injuries. You ask what your exercise history is. You are then passed off to a trainer. A trainer then personally walks you in and puts you on your number, breaks down any of the intimidation factors that you may have coming into a workout experience, reassures you that the only thing you have to worry about are the terrible jokes that you're going to hear over the next 45 minutes. So (laughs) all of those things go in place. They ask your name. Then we've got a software system that reminds us of their name throughout it because name recognition and name association is such a big part with developing a connection, right, and developing a relationship. So now all of a sudden they go from a journey, a Joey journey, and now they're mates. And what does a mate mean, right? It's all those things that we spoke about before. That person, that mate has to know that when they come into training, mate, they're going to be supported. They're going to be encouraged. They're going to be heroed. They're going to be in a positive four walls, a safe four walls. They're going to be greeted with either a nickname or at least a very positive greeting. And they're going to be smiled at. And they're going to know that for that 45 minutes, whatever problem they got going on outside is not relevant. They know that in that 45 minutes, they're going to be in a safe place that is full of positivity, love, and motivation. As frou-frou as that sounds, we deliver on that because that's what we promise. Yeah, well, I think it's only frou-frou if you don't deliver on it. I think it's very powerful that you all are passionate and and do deliver on it. And I think it's very interesting and powerful, and I love that you have taken the time. You know, you you could have probably scaled to hundreds and hundreds of units if you wanted to. I think you've consciously – uh, and I don't want to put words in, in your mouth, but I think you've very consciously taken time to curate the experience, curate the uh, management systems, and curate the client 
and customer relationships so that you're creating more than just a, you know, four walls of people are coming to work out and you're creating a culture and um, an important part of someone's day. So I love that you've been very thoughtful and methodical and kind of setting up the foundation and not going so fast and scaling that you, you lose that because I think if, you know, you think about building a, an enduring business and a, and a kind of a long-term business that customers will be loyal to, I think it takes time and thought uh, like you've put into it. So I'd, I'd love to um, maybe talk a little bit about, because I think over the last few years, this has probably been a very hard period for gyms. But, uh, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think your gyms and, and have done actually differentially very well. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on why that has been, kind of where things are now and, and where you're going over the next you know number of years with building Training Mate. Yeah, I think this is a really good transition and, and, and to sort of tie the whole conversation together. Look, the last couple of years, especially in a service-focused business that requires physicality, people coming into your actual studios, brick-and-mortar studios, you know, look – Restaurants, gyms, all the rest of it, bars. It's been, it's been, the adversity has been probably the highest we've ever seen. The challenges have been some of the highest we've ever seen. We're talking about actual lockdowns. Nothing you can do anything about, you know, pure punishment on things that are out of your control. Now, with that though, comes opportunity. Right. So going back to what I was always saying about, you know, the opportunities that came through adversity in sports. Now the opportunities come in business. Now, what we've developed is this passion for systems. And over the last couple of years, which were, were definitely tough and the adversity was there, we just relied on our culture, we relied on all of our foundational strengths that I have mentioned over the last hour. And what we started to really realize was there was real magic at training, mate. And the magic was in the culture, the magic was in our systems, and the magic was that we were the best part of people's lives and people's days. So from that, Again, silver lining, we've actually decided to get that out and we've decided to franchise. So now we're really, really focused on expanding and really relying on all of those systems that we've developed and really focused on over the last couple of years in order to develop and deliver this healthy lifestyle message to the absolute masses. Now, I am so optimistic, even though the last couple of years has been quite challenging for the industry, we're starting to see some real signs of growth. And what I am so optimistic about, I believe that we are at the absolute tip of the iceberg as far as what the wellness industry is going to do. We're seeing right now, we're starting to see some challenges economically. We're starting to see inflation through the roof. We're starting to see all of these different things that are going to negatively impact a lot of people's lives financially and start to challenge our mental health. Anxiety and depression is at an all-time high. Now, I say that with a smile on my face because I believe that there are tools in place and systems in place to actually be able to fix this. And this is where we rely on the wellness industry. I believe that so much of people's Disposable income will be invested in actual wellness things and things that make them feel better. Training Mate is what I call a serotonin company, not a dopamine company. We're so tied into these dopamine hits now, right? Instagram, the highlight reels, instant gratification, investing even in business. You think about the market in business over the last decade. It's tech stocks going through the roof. It's things that change overnight. It's Bitcoin this and Ethereum that and Dogecoin that. It's instantaneous success and it's instantaneous reflection on on this dopamine release. 
I believe that the secret's in the serotonin. I believe the secret is in this long-term happiness and wellness. And I think that the impact that the wellness industry and especially the experiential wellness industry is going to have on the world is going to be like we've never seen. It's a generational opportunity now to take advantage of the silver lining coming out of adversity. And that's why we've decided at Training Mate to franchise and to get that word out to the absolute masses. Yeah, it's a it's an exciting concept, and in a, in a uh, clearly you've proven it out in these first number of of gyms and facilities, especially through you know a very challenging time. You know what what better way to prove out a concept than not only surviving through that that sort of period, but but thriving and getting bigger and better and stronger. So I'm very excited for you. I, I will plan to as soon as I can come in and have my own Joey. Or maybe Jory journey, which will be even <laughs> even more uh, embarrassing than maybe a Joey journey. But I'd love to uh, end on something that I ask uh, everyone, and it's kind of I don't know if you've been to a convenience store or a gas station where there's a take a penny and leave a penny dish. But with the goal of kind of building a community around uh, business builders, I'd love for you to leave something and take something. And what I mean by that is, you know, in leaving something, is there Something specific, either a business insight or a trick or a book or a habit, you know, it could be grandiose. It could be very tactical and specific that you'd want to share with the community. And then I'll ask uh, you to, to to take something in a sec, which is, you know, if our listeners and our community and our networks could help you with anything, what is that? Is it, uh, well, I'll, I'll let you um, decide what, what that means to you. Yeah, thanks, Joe, mate. This is a really important part. I think for me, something that I'll leave, and I really genuinely believe in this, fall in love with the journey. Fall in love and find purpose and fulfillment in the journey. The destination will always change. The destination's a mirage in my mind. It will always change. It will always grow or shrink or whatever it may be. Fall in love with the day-to-day of what you're doing. Trust your values, trust your vision, and trust your passion, and you cannot go wrong. That's what I would give. (laughs) Uh, I love that. Fall in love with the journey and the girl. Exactly. There you go. If you can't find that, just 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 do the, the, the passion play. But <laughs> and, and, and what can I and we help you with? I, I'd love to. Uh, I'm sure this has been and will be very helpful for a number of people. What what can we help you with? Look, well, thank you for built to outlast and yourself for having me on. I really appreciate it. I get so much out of being in these communities that it really inspires me and motivates me. Sometimes we can be talking to the masses, but we're also talking to ourselves. and you start to listen to yourself and go, hey, I forgot about that. That's a really good idea. I'm going to go back and make sure that I've done that. Um, I, I, I would say that, look, Training Mate and myself, I, we've always done best with organic word-of-mouth advertising. So spread the word. Follow us at Training Mate on any of the social media channels. Shoot me an email. Spread the word about Training Mate. The more people that hear about positive companies that are doing the right thing by their communities, the better. So the more you talk about it, the more that you can Im- impact your community, the better it is for our community. So just spread that positive word great and and i will make sure we have if you're open to it a way to get in touch with you in the show notes and i don't want to put these words in your mouth but i'm sure over time you'll be looking for great people to to be mates in building the platform and so uh, that could be a great connection to make uh, for you and for folks in the community 
Mate, there you go. If anyone has an experience in scaling out the franchise model where at the initial stages, or if anyone's interested in it, come and give me a call. You know what my contact details are now. So, yeah, um, we're always looking for good people and always looking to be a part of good communities. So, again, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it, and, and I think everyone did. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources, please visit builttooutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is or want to build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. 